this. Okay, so um, what I was what I was going to say there is um, there are areas when we look at like the historical like account of the resurrection or the the historical understanding of the church related to the resurrection of Christ um, is what we're going to find is that the Catholic Church believes in bodily resurrection of Christ. We believe in bodily resurrection of Christ. Um, from the beginning to now, the like hill to die on, and that we covered this in the systematic portion of this, but for the church throughout history, the hill to die on for the church was that Christ was raised bodily from the grave. Belief in that reality was the difference between being a believer and not, right? Like, it's the hill to die on. Did Christ raise from the dead bodily three days later? Did he ascend into heaven bodily some 40 days later, right? Like, the church has held this belief from the beginning to today. This is what makes the church the church, Right? Like this is the central doctrine. Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've, we've covered that already, so I'm not gonna, um, not gonna belabor that point. So, um, what I wanna kinda do, and there's gonna be, I apologize for this. I tend to not do this, but, um, in the historical section, um, of, of this study, I will, I will tend to, um, do quite a bit of reading, so bear with me. I try not to read too like monotone so that you would go to sleep whenever I do, but I apologize if that's the case. So stay awake, alright? <laughs> stay awake. If I catch you dozing, I will call you out. No, I'm just teasing. Maybe you had a long night. If you were to doze, I won't call you out. Um, so today we're going to look at the historical understanding of the resurrection of Christ, and we're going to start um, with this. So the church, this is this is kind of a full plagiarism from the historical theology book here. So um, the church has historically believed that Jesus Christ rose on the third day following his crucifixion and then ascended into heaven 40 days later. It is pointed to the resurrection as God's seal of approval on the death of Christ as complete payment for humanity's sin and as a promise of the final bodily resurrection of all believers. And the church has underscored the importance of the ascension as a guarantee that Christ has received glory and honor and now rules with all authority over the entire universe. So the church has held that view from beginning to today, right? Now, the church has had to defend its claims regarding the bodily resurrection of Christ from the very beginning as well. It is not, and here, here's something that I want, so as we look at, at the historical view, what we're not going to be seeing today is much like divergence from the understanding that the early church had. We hold that same view. What we're going to find is we're going to look instead at the ex, these external attacks that have been hurled upon the church. And what I want us to see um, whenever, we, when, whenever we see this is for you as a believer who is presenting the gospel to a, an unbeliever, believing world, they are going to hurl insults your way. They are going to mock you for the foolishness that you believe. And here's what I want to say, and here's what the history of the church has said. It's not the first time. It won't be the last time. And hey, you who mock me, you're not novel in what you say either. Right? You're not. 
Like, if you rewind hundreds of generations back, the church has heard the same thing, the same words of unbelief, time and time and time again. So when you face it, when you go out and you preach, and they're like, they stole the body, and you're like, oh, they did that? Like, you're like, well... Let's, let's go and see what has been said. How has the church approached this argument in the past? And they have been approaching this from the very beginning. So when you are brought, when mocking or when like um, claims of the foolishness are brought to you, understand that you can go and look at people who have come before you and see how they've responded to these same insults. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. Um, so that's what I want us to understand is that it is not new or novel development that the unbelieving heart would find our claims to be foolish, yet the church has historically maintained that Christ or that Christianity stands or collapses on the reality of these events. So like this is the hill um, that we die on. So there's widespread agreement on the resurrection and ascension among the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, the Protestants. Um, so much so, so we're gonna, I'm going to be quoting here, um, this is a Jewish historian by the name of uh, Josephus, and this is what he said. So this is kind of in the, in the phase of the early church. This is what um, someone who's not a believer looking at the believers has something to say about this church. And, and, and so like when we look at this we're going to look at several places here like direct quotes from people who were not a part of the church but who were speaking on behalf of what the church was saying right so these are outside views right this is not like an in-house thing where it's like you know this is was made up years and years and years later we actually can look and see what people were saying about these believers during the early days of the church and draw conclusions from that now would you expect that everything that someone Someone who was mocking the, the believing church says is going to be a hundred percent accurate representation? Probably not. They're probably going to be straw manning the church just like the church gets straw man today when arguments are, are thrown at it. But we can gain information from the words of people who are outside the church to further solidify our understanding um, uh, that what we claim about the church having held this from the very beginning is true. So this is, uh, just, this is a quote from Josephus himself, uh, a well-known Jewish historian. Y'all, I'm certain, have all heard his, his name um, in the past. So this is from him. About this time, there li- I'm going to pause for a second. He he so he so well represents what the believing church um, believes here that it almost sounds like he himself believes it. Like it's it's like that that close. He almost is putting himself in the frame of mind um, of of the church. So so just bear that in mind as I quote him. Um, he's not in fact a, a, a believer here. So about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. If indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the high standing among us, he had condemned him to be crucified. Those who had, in the first place, come to love him did not give up their affection for him. 
On the third day, he appeared to them, restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. So this is someone outside the church speaking to, and he he like holds so closely um, in like um, speaking to what that the church was actually saying in that time uh, that it almost sounds like like it's coming from the mouth of a believer. Like if I were going to represent the church, like you know I'm sure that there was some like like mockery and some scorn underlying some of those statements there, but it's like I'm like. Seem pretty spot on to me right there. Like you, you seem to do, you seem to do justice in representing um, this this um, tribe of Christians, as they were called. Um, that that you would represent them, um, represent them well, and rep- represent their beliefs well. So this is speaking to the early church there. So um, even the critics of the early church. I think, testify to the claims that were made by Christians in their recorded mockery. Um, as an example, so I'm going to quote again here. So this, this example comes from um, Celsus, who is a, an early opponent to Christianity. And he says this. <clears throat> so again, this is, this is mockery. And this, this sounds more like mockery than what we get from the historian um, just prior to this. So, um, but who witnessed this? A hysterical woman, as you state, and this is speaking to the resurrection, right? The claim, like, it was foolish that you, that the people, the first people that saw it, like, for us, it sounds sexist, right? <laughs> You're like, whoa, a woman can't witness a thing? But it's like, during this time, no. Like, it was, like, you're going to make up a lie, and you're going to start it like this. Like, that's essentially what he's, like, what he's saying. Like, you, you, this is st- like a dumb way of bringing up a lie. So, but who witnessed this? A, yes, yes, yes. A, a his, exactly, exactly. A hysterical woman, as you state, and someone else who was caught up in the same pattern of delusion. This person either dreamed it, owning to a particular state of mind, or he was under the influence of an overactive imagination and so concocted an appearance of Jesus according to his own wishes. I'm going to pause right there for a second. So the idea that like you were delusional or like you wanted to see this happen, like, like that's an argument that's not new. Like, we, you will, if you present the gospel enough times to the unbelieving world enough times, you will hear it said that they were probably just delusional. They were probably just wishful thinking. If you're wishful thinking, then he didn't actually die. That's where you would go. Because it would be foolish to say, oh yeah, he died, but this one event that's never happened happened. Like, if you're delusional, you don't make up that kind of foolishness because you need something that sticks a little closer to reality, right? Like, what, these, what, what the woman claimed to see, what the, what, the, what the apostles claimed to see was a man who was dead and now not dead, okay? This is not an overactive imagination, right? So they concocted an appearance of Jesus, he he claims here. Uh, So continuing with the quote from Celsus, um, this kind of wishful thinking has been verified in countless cases. I wish you would state your evidence for that, but he does not. Um, Or perhaps what is more probable, this person desired to impress others with the sign 
And by such a lie, wanted to create an opportunity for imposters like himself. So here we get another argument that gets hurled at us, right? Well, they had their own sinister motives, right? They wanted money. They wanted wealth. Tell me how that went for them. Yes. Tell me how it went for them. When they started claiming what they were claiming, people didn't throw money at them. Right? People did, like, the world wasn't like, oh, snap, here's all our gold, take it. Like, you're going to be so rich for making this story up. It's the best thing that I've ever heard. No, they all died proclaiming this. They did not become wealthy men for claiming this. Right? So this idea that they were doing it for their own motives is not a new idea. Right? This is, again, these are quotes from opponents to the church in the early church. Um, so other attacks raised against the reality of the resurrection accused the followers of deception. According to Justin Martyr, the Jews maintained that his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when, unfast, uh, when unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting that he was risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. Okay, so the Jews from the very beginning, and this is noted in Scripture. Go read the Gospel accounts, right? The Jews from the beginning give the best argument, right? They give the best argument. They're like, they stole him by night. And now they started telling these lies, right? Now, again, if they had stolen the body away and they had started teaching these lies, foolishly thinking we're going to become wealthy or powerful and persecution comes against them, someone's going to crack under that pressure. Yet everyone goes to their grave pro proclaiming this truth, right? That they've seen the resurrected Savior. Okay, so this idea that the disciples stole the body again—that is not a new thing. Okay, so if you're out proclaiming this good news and someone's like, "Yeah, but he stole him," be like, "Okay, let's flip to that in the text and let's see how that has not stopped the church from then until now." And we'll explore why it doesn't make sense, right? So the church, as the church has historically done, as the church will continue to do provides the defense against these things, right? So John Christostom has the defense he brings here in this case against this argument. Um, the idea that they uh, stole the body, this is what he says. This is very interesting. I did not realize this about, like, that this was a property of myrrh, and this is one of those things where, like, studying history paid off, even just understanding of reality itself. So John Christostom says this, What does it mean that the grave linens were stuck on with the myrrh? And I'm like, I've, I've got no clue. Um, let's, let's learn a little bit here. For Peter saw these lying in the tomb. For if the disciples were interested in stealing, they would not have stolen the body naked. I mean, that seems to make sense to me, right? Like, keep him wrapped up, get him out of there. Like, what sense does it make, like, to unwrap him, okay? And that was even if it were easy, like you just take his shirt off or something, you know? Like, But apparently this myrrh makes the situation a little bit more difficult even than that, which is kind of cool. Um, so 
Um, why would they steal the body naked? So, for if the disciples, this is again quoting John Chrysostom, were interested in stealing, they would not have stolen the body naked, not only because of dishonoring it, but also in order not to delay and lose time in stripping it. Yep, that makes sense. Not And not to give them who were interested an opportunity to awake and seize them. Yep, that makes sense. Um, especially when it was myrrh a drug that adheres tightly to the body and cleaves to the clothes. Thus, it was not easy to take the clothes off the body and would require much time. From this, again, the tale of theft is impossible. So what are we gleaning from this? One, that's pretty interesting info into the reason that myrrh was used. Like I, like I'm like, ha, oh, that's cool. Did not know that before. Two, the church has never been unprepared for these arguments, right? Like the guy's like, it doesn't make sense. And let me line up for you rational, reasonable reasons that it doesn't make sense. And what was it? Was this some like, this is somebody in 2021 who has got the benefit of, of all that the internet and the knowledge that we can gain from it has to offer. This is like modern man bringing these defenses. No. No, this is from the very beginning. When these kind of attacks were brought up, the church was not unprepared in this. They were very prepared. Okay, so um, kind of closing out the, um, the section on like the early church, I want to quote from uh, Cyprian. He's a bishop um, in ancient Carthage. Um, and this does a pretty good job, I think, of kind of summarizing what they believed about, um, about Christ and the resurrection. So, on the third day, speaking of Christ here, on the third day, he freely rose again from the dead. He appeared to his disciples as he had been and presented himself for recognition by those who saw and associated with him. Being evident by the nature of his bodily existence, he delayed for 40 days so they might be instructed by him in the precepts of life and might learn what they were to teach. Then, I want you to listen to this. Like This is he, so, well, so well said about the, the ascension. So, then, in a cloud spread around him, he was lifted up into heaven that as a conqueror he might bring to the father man whom he loved whom he put on and whom he shielded from death like man man that is such an like an amazing amazing thought um, so the church from the very beginning has believed in the bodily resurrection the bodily ascension, and uh, of course our hope in his physical bodily return. So um, through the Middle Ages, um, they continued to teach and defend the traditional understanding of the resurrection as it was passed on to them by the early church and as they passed it on. Um, we will be able to wrap up because we have three minutes, and I'm just going to power through 
this. Okay, so during the time of the Reformation, the Reformation or the Reformers continued to affirm the church's historic position on the resurrection and ascension. Thus, no doctrinal drift from the Roman Catholics broke out over this issue. That doesn't mean there were no issues. The implications that were drawn from the doctrine of the bodily resurrection by the Reformers did, however, impact other areas of doctrinal dispute between the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. One such example is our understanding of the Lord's Supper. As stated by the reformer uh, Holdrich Zwingli, man, I'm, that name is rough. I apologize um, for butchering that. Uh, belief in the resurrection and ascension, and ascension demanded recognition that Christ's human body is located at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, he concluded, it cannot be present during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. He argued from this that the church's the, from the church's confession of faith. And this is kind of that argument. They, being the false teachers, are confronted by the articles of our Christian creed. He, speaking about Christ, ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, they must either abandon the false doctrine of the presence of the essential body of Christ in this sacrament, or else they must at once renounce these three articles of faith, which God forbid anyone should ever do. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here with a quote from uh, from John Calvin, one of the reformers, because um, it's very interesting. Like this is not a new idea, but I think the way that he the way that he words it is is super powerful. Um, so this is this is from this is from Calvin. So Christ left us in such a way. And this is speaking about the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit here. So Christ left us in such a way that his presence might be more useful to us. A presence that had been confined in a humble abode of flesh so long as he sojourned on earth. After the ascension, this more useful present presence is none other than the Holy Spirit. The ascension also brought greater power and ruling energy to Christ. We see how much more abundantly he advanced his kingdom, how much greater power he displayed both in helping his people and in scattering his enemies. Carried up to heaven, therefore, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sights, not to cease to be presence present with believers still on their earthly pilgrimage, but to rule heaven and earth with a more immediate power. By his ascension, he fulfilled what he had promised, that he would be with us even to the end of the world. As his body was raised up above all the heavens, so his power and energy were diffused and spread beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth. Um, so the church has held this belief um, continuing through the modern age. Um, this cycle continues of insults and uh, mockery being hurled at the church and at the same time um, the church being well equipped uh, to defend against these um, from the knowledge and insights that have come before us um, from other believers and from God's word. Um, as we study it faithfully. Um, so I'm going to close this in prayer and then we will be done.